Hello. Hello. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Hi. Hi, hi again. That was a very weird morning show. Like, like good morning, <laughs> Phoenix, kind of like. <laughs> hi, everybody. The traffic on the I-10 is absolutely <laughs> fucking wrecked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so who are you? What's your name? Oh, my name is Amelia Ampuero, and I am one of your co-hosts of the Weirdest Thing podcast. And I am Scott Milder. I am your other co-host. And uh, yeah, that was, I mean, less of a mess than some of our intros, but less of I yeah, I'd put it on a I'd put it about mid right. mid level. That was a five. <laughs> yeah, Not at least we like didn't forget to give our names for five minutes, which we've done before. One hundred percent have absolutely done. Yeah, so um, awesome. Awesome. Well, should we go ahead and dive in or is there, do we need to do any catch up on anything? No, I don't know that we need to do any catch up. Yeah, no, I guess we can just, uh, who's going first? Am I, I think going I'm first? going first. You're going first? Yeah. I thought you went first last time. No, remember, because I bummed everyone out with the bomb story. You did. So. <laughs> okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Well, then yeah. I can move my Zoom window over <laughs> and just relax. Fuck yes. Yeah. So Okay, amazing. So, yeah, I'm going to try and, like, this is a, I'm going to try and, like, not do a bummer story this week. Um. So. Uh, I like how you say you're going to try, like, you well, don't know what the story is. I mean, there's, like, a couple bummer elements to it, but. Overall, it's not a bummer, okay. I, would, I would say. Um, okay. I, I do, I don't have a cold open, but I have like a cold scenario. I would like you to like role play with me a little bit. Um, well, not okay. really role play, but just imagine. <laughs> you don't need to do funny voices or anything. Okay. Um, Thank um, God, like, finally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like you're, I mean, you know, obviously you're an actor, but you're also a singer. Like I've heard yeah. you do karaoke. You can fucking you can fucking belt it out. Yeah. So, like, imagine when, like, how long ago was it that you were in college? Like, those the early 2000s? That's rude. It's rude yeah. for you to ask me that on a <laughs> on a publicly broadcasted podcast. But, yes, it was about, it was about 20 years ago. Okay, so that's about right. <laughs> um, so, imagine, like, for a couple of years while you were in Austin, you were actually in a band. And, okay. like. Or, or we're like, you know, maybe performing on your own or whatever. Um, and you actually like got signed to a, a record label, okay. and, you know, maybe like a small, you know, based in, you know, South Texas kind of record label. And uh, they actually put out a couple albums and the albums really didn't do anything. Um, you got dropped from the label. You got your, you know, you did your audition at a uh, barter, ended up in Abingdon and, you know, focused on your acting career and kind of like forgot about this history okay. as a musician. Okay. For a while. Um, And then imagine someone calls you and you find out that not only are you popular in a foreign country, you are like bigger than the Beatles. And you have actually become the voice of one of the most important protest movements the world has ever known. Okay. So this story, uh, a lot of people are actually going to probably know this story. It's not all that obscure anymore. Uh, but this story, this weekend, we're going to be talking about Sixto Rodriguez and how he became the voice of uh, the fight against apartheid in South Africa. 
Beautiful. Let's do it. All right. So my uh, sources this week were Wikipedia, an article, like a web archive article, which was like pretty detailed. So I think it was like a magazine article, but I can like it had no like author or where it was published. So I don't know anything about it. But. Okay. Um, then a mirror.co.uk article, Rolling Stone, and then uh, mostly the documentary. This is where people would know the story. The documentary Searching for Sugar Man, which was from 2012. This was, if you remember, if I believe that documentary won the Oscar that year. I don't, but I believe you. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really fantastic documentary. And part of the reason I want to do the story actually is that the subject of the documentary, Sixto Rodriguez, has just recently passed away last week. Uh, okay. So this is kind okay. of in tribute to him. Awesome. Um, okay, so Jesus Sixto Diaz Rodriguez was born on July 10th, 1942 in Detroit, Michigan. His parents were Mexican immigrants. He was the sixth child. That's why they called him Sixto. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. His mother died, unfortunately, when he was very young. He was three mm. years old. And his father, sounds like his father was just like a hardworking, like blue collar dude. But like, he really inspired like the love of music in his son because he would actually like he would go where I, and I couldn't figure out where he worked but he worked you know whatever his job was and he'd come home and that night for the kids they would sit around and he would play Mexican folk songs mm. um, so Sixto said later he said my father's night would usually end with a couple drinks and a few songs I would always listen to his heartbreaking songs he loved music and I picked it up through him so as a teenager Sixto taught himself how to play the guitar he was especially inspired by an electric blues musician named Jimmy Reed. Um, he was also a big Ray Charles fan. He dropped out of high school when he was 16. He tried to join the Army. They wouldn't take him, probably because he was 16. And then he just started kind of like hanging around the Wayne State University campus um, in Detroit. I mean, he wasn't a student. He was, you know, I think he was probably like 16, 17 still. But he just kind of fell in with this like group of hippies and like artists and war protesters. You know, it was just kind of part of that whole like 60s thing. So he said, Said, uh, my career happened through introductions. Someone introduced me here. Someone took me there. I eventually met Harry Walsh, who ran a label called Impact Records. He wanted to record me and sign me up for a 60-year contract. 60? 60? 60-year <laughs> contract. Jesus. And so, which is obviously, I mean, that's like not legal. Um, but Sixto yeah, was okay. like, that was fine. I knew I could outlive that. So he signs with this little tiny little company called impact records and you got to think about like this is detroit like motown era detroit so this is yeah. like it is a music city and there's all these like labels popping up and then they fold you know because everyone's yeah. trying to get like a piece of this pie you know so yeah. he signed with this uh label called impact they put out his first single it was called i'll slip away he was going by the name rod Riga's, like rod as <laughs> yep. his first name Riga's. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. fantastic <laughs> the level of creativity mm -hmm. um unsurprisingly that was his record label choice but not his <laughs> um yeah he has always gone by uh himself he's always gone by rodriguez like that mm -hmm. that was his like moniker on all his okay. except for early on he was rodriguez so they put out the single it basically like sank like a stone mm. like nobody noticed it because impact was just like they were tiny and they were like in the saturated market of detroit they ended up actually going out of business like right after that 
So Sixto, you know, he keeps doing his thing. He's playing gigs all around Detroit. He was like really popular at a local gay bar called The In Between. But he also, he played like down at the wharf, you know, like along the river, the Detroit River. He played all these dive bars. He played biker bars. He actually has a song on the second album called, I think it's like the most disgusting song. And it starts off with, he's like, I paid this kind of bar and I played this kind of bar, you know, like. And, and it's always like, and what I found is like, people are just people wherever you go, kind of thing, you know? Awesome. <laughs> I was like, oh, good for you, Six Death. Nice, yeah. Nice message. And he actually, like, he designed his own sound system. Like, he had a classical guitar that he put an electric pickup on and then played it through a bass amp. Because he was trying to get the quote, uh, or he was trying to quote, echo the fuzzy wall of confusion, unemployment, and racial tension that characterized Detroit. And when you listen to his record, he's got two albums, and you can find them on like Spotify and everything. Okay. He's really interesting because it's a mix of like kind of Dylan esque folk in some ways. And like, this is going to sound like an insult. I don't mean it to be. He actually weirdly reminds me of like if you've listened to Charles Manson's music, just like his voice a little bit has got that Charles Manson voice. I don't know that I have actually. So I don't have a, that face was me not having a reference, not like a moral judgment on that you know what Manson (laughs) Well, I'm assuming with all the horror fans who listen to this, some people know what I'm talking about. Right. If you've ever listened to Look at Your Game Girl, it's like a little bit like that, but, but not like creepy and evil. Like he's thinking about like, you know life in the inner city kind of stuff mm-hmm. but then like some of it is also like you know detroit was like this was motown you know but it was also like detroit was kind of where like the first real proto-punk bands started kind of making a lot of noise specifically you had the stooges again the stooges and you have mm-hmm. the mc5 um these were like loud bratty i mean like famously mc5 you know kick out the jams you know starts with uh kick out the jams motherfucker which is like you know in the 60s was like kind of in the 60s yeah, yeah yeah absolutely you know these were bands that like would go on to inspire the ramones and the sex pistols and all this stuff so um, six is kind of he's part of like the hippie scene but he's also kind of part of that you know so when you listen to particularly his first album which is called cold facts it's like this weird mix of like i said kind of dylan-esque folk and then like loud kind of garage rock it's good like he he was really good you know spoiler alert he was actually like genuinely (laughs) a good musician so okay and so he said and then there's another quote from him he says quote my goal was to make a couple bucks and when you're solo you get paid each night that was my reward that and the social activities i over partied a little (laughs) So in the late 60s, like I said, this was just a really, like, happening city in terms of music. Mm-hmm. And Sixto was just kind of, like, drifting through it as this weird, almost semi-mythical figure, it sounds like. Because he was he was sort of like, he was this strange guy who was very socially awkward, so he never talked to anybody. Mm-hmm. He would often play with his back to the crowd, and he was always playing in these dingy, like, dive bars and stuff, oh. like I said. Uh-huh. He always wore black. Um, okay. There's a lot of pictures of him with like like a black trench coat, and a big black fedora. They had long black hair, often with like big black sunglasses. You know, so I mean, he had like a look. There was definitely an aesthetic, mm-hmm. and no one like knew anything about him or where he lived. And like some people were like, like you get this from the documentary. Where they're like, yeah, like I thought he like might be homeless, or like I heard he was like doing roofing, you know, to make his money during the day. Okay. Like, um but like he was just this like figure that would just like pop up and you'd be on the street and all of a sudden there's six though you know yeah like, or you're in a bar and oh six though is playing tonight you know 
but like, you didn't really have any friends or like you know just this kind of weird kind of strange wraith like figure <laughs> drifting through new york or right. through detroit so one night in 1968 a couple of local record producers a guy named dennis coffee who would go on to work with marvin gay stevie wonder gladys knight you know all these motown bands and then another guy named mike theodore they went down to this little dingy dive bar by the detroit river and i'm not sure they talk about this bar in the documentary they mentioned a bar called the sewer and i'm not sure if this is the same bar or if this was a different bar but but it gives you <laughs> the idea of like I'm just wondering the type of when, yeah i'm just wondering when they were like fuck it let's open a bar and they were like what should we call it like joe's place or yeah. yeah and then they were like no you know what the sewer everyone wants to go to the sewer yeah <laughs> sure sure um but so so these two record producers i think because mike theodore had maybe seen sixto somewhere else Okay. And so he goes to this guy. He's like, you have to see this guy. This guy's actually really good. They figured out where he was playing. It was this like dingy little club down by the river. And they're talking about how like, as they're going down there, it's like all this fog coming up off the river. Okay. And then they go into the club and it's all the smoke from the cigarettes. And it was like, it was like in this weird, like Sherlock Holmes story or something. Yeah. And it's just like, you could hear the foghorn of like the freighters going by on the river. And then sitting in the corner with his back to the crowd, singing into a microphone is six step. And they were immediately taken by it. And so they introduced themselves and they were like, we want to like record you. We think you, you might have like, you know, the stuff, the thing, you know. Um, and so they introduced him to a guy named Clarence Avant, who owned a record label called Sussex. Um, which was, again, it was a small label, but it was bigger than Impact. Okay. Now, remember this guy, Clarence Avant, because uh, okay. he'll come back into the story <laughs> okay. later. But yeah, so Sixto, he got, he got signed, and, he's, and he put out a couple albums under the name Rodriguez. They assembled a band for him of like local session musicians, but he wasn't comfortable playing. At this point, he couldn't play with mm. other people. Because mm. um, he was so just used to like him and his guitar kind of. So he would go in and he would lay down his tracks first and then go home and then the band would come in and use his tracks as like guide tracks and kind of build around it. Oof, okay. Uh, the album was called Cold Facts. It was finished in 1969. It was, it's 10 tracks. It's about 32 minutes long. The opening track is Sugar Man, which was about a local drug dealer. And like people in the documentary are like, oh yeah, I know who Sugar Man like we we, wow. we all know we all knew sugar man <laughs> wow okay but it would kind of become his signature song sussex put the album out in 1970 and again lead balloon like mm. nobody bought it nobody listened to it part of it was sussex just they didn't quite have the pull to get the songs played on the radio oh. so just nobody noticed it yeah and it sounds like he was also really bad at promoting himself. Like he, like I said, he's just this kind of awkward guy. Yeah. We can tell when he watched the documentary, he's like, not a great interview. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he's very, and he's very like, he seems to be a very oddly concrete thinker for like an artist. Because people yeah. ask like, how did it feel? And he'd be like, I don't know. I had a bed. It was fine. You know, kind of like. Yeah. Very that, you know, matter of fact. And then he was also like, he was known as this kind of political musician. A lot of his songs were about like poverty, about like mm. class warfare, class strife in Detroit. He would actually get political activists up on stage and he'd perform and let them like give speech or you know, whatever. And this was like alienating, particularly like music industry people who were like, uh, look, we just want to make money off of you. We don't want your like opinions mm -hmm. about like your life and your situation. Right. So shut up and sing. 
Yeah, I think that was basically it. Yeah. So, you know, didn't do that well. That uh, The first album just kind of, like, failed. But they were like, let's take one more shot. They bankrolled a follow-up album. It's called Coming From Reality. And they put that out the following year in 1971. And it actually did worse than the first album. My God. And at one point, someone in the documentary says, like, oh, it sold six records. And I'm not sure if that was a joke or if, like, the way it's said in the documentary sounds like it might have actually sold six records. Six records. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Poor guy. <laughs> so, like, um, and this is a quote from Sixto. He said, I really thought Cold Fact was going to make it. There was a lot of work done, and I thought there was a big chance for it, but it didn't happen. I went into the second album, but again, a lot of other things happened, and the place went bankrupt. Nothing beats three but the revolution never stops power to the people it's a real political kind of thing so like and that's the thing about him when you it seemed like throughout his life he's just a very roll with the punches kind of person mm. like there was no bitterness it was just like hey, well took my shot you know he's, he's at this point he was 29 uh sussex went out of business and he had three daughters eva sandra and regan and he was like i need to support my kids so he put the guitar away, pretty much walked away from the music industry. Mm. And he spent the next couple of decades like working as a day laborer. And he talked about how much he actually really enjoys this work. Like mm. where he was like doing a lot of like demolition for housing projects, you know, and like home renovation type stuff. It was just like it's like work with your hands. You get out, you like get the blood flowing, you know. Like but still, even though he was like working as a day laborer, he was like wanted his daughters to have like a sense of culture so he was like always taking them to the art museums he was also stayed involved in detroit politics it sounds like he was a real unsurprisingly like a real left winger right. um he would take his daughters to like political protests he ran for mayor twice um and he ran for city council several times never came anywhere near winning because no one knew who the fuck he was like, yeah but you know he was he was it sounds like he was like kind of like a local character like you we have a couple around here you know in albuquerque that like oh blah 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 down by you and i'm like everyone right. knows who you're talking about you know right. it sounds like yeah. that was kind of six though yeah you know like you mentioned people like oh yeah i know six though but like that kind of thing yeah now one thing i want to mention is like they interview his daughters in the documentary and mm -hmm. it's clear like they revere him like they like just the affection that they have for him so like he was clearly like just like good dad you know just Aww, yeah. yeah now he did have like a little resurgence in his career and this will kind of play in with what happens in south africa but sussex you know it went under but like you know the way these things always go someone buys the catalog rights and then they're licensing rights to like some foreign record label who's putting it out in that country and blah blah, right. blah. so like he became kind of like minorly popular for a minute in australia and he actually went and did like some performances in australia he, he opened for uh the band midnight oil like in the early 80s like Remember wow. that? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, okay. But again, like, that's about as far as it went. Okay. Yeah. He lived in the same house in Detroit, you know, just working demolition, raising his daughters, doing his thing, going down to the bar, you know, getting drinks with his friends, you know, mm -hmm. occasionally running for mayor. Yeah. Just being six, though. Meanwhile, you have South Africa. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on apartheid. I was um, like, uh oh. Okay. This is where I was like, there's some bummer elements to the story. Right. I just <laughs> didn't know if you're going to be like, so Africa. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely bullet pointed this. Like, okay. we're not going to go into like the entire, like, apartheid is its own fucking is its rabbit hole. Its own, like, series of episodes. Yeah. 
and it is a fascinating story. It's a fascinating history. It is a dark history. As bad as we, not to minimize anything like that, you know, black folks have experienced in this country, but it's just like, it's hard to compare anything mm. to apartheid. Mm-hmm. So it's an Afrikaans word and the uh, Afrikaans, you know, like if you, again, not to go into too deep into the history, but the colonial history of South Africa was originally the Dutch. That's right. And then the British came in later. So you have these two kind of, the white population was divided into these two kind of groups that were mm. not necessarily that integrated. Yeah. Um, they had somewhat different agendas. You had the Afrikaner population, which which I think lived more inland and they were like farmers and stuff. And then you have the British who are a little more towards the coast. Okay. And Afrikaans is a language that is derived from Dutch. So apartheid in Afrikaans means either separateness or literally aparthood. De facto apartheid has existed in South Africa since the beginning of colonialism. Right. But it became the official law of the country in 1948. The ruling party of South Africa before that was called the United Party. They were kind of a center-right party. There was definitely a lot of segregation and stuff in the country, but the United Party started talking, like, liberalizing on racial stuff. Mm. And, and it sounds like the United Party was much more, like, dominated by, like, kind of the British faction, which was maybe a little bit less right-wing than the Afrikaner faction. Okay. Now, obviously, I'm talking broad strokes. Like, broad strokes, right. Like, this wouldn't, you know, this not every Afrikaner was, like a horrible racist you know okay but like you know so the united party they started to kind of liberalize on race which meant a lot of their support on the more right right wing part of the party left and this led to 1948 the national party took power Mm. and the national party was an afrikaner dominated party and it was much more right wing and question yeah has there ever been any party that has been called like the national party that have been like cool dudes I don't think so. <laughs> right. So, okay. Just so if it pops up, somebody's if like, we're the, the national party. National or front anywhere in the name of the party. <laughs> run. R U N exclamation point. Run. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, All right. No. Na- if national party, because it's nationalism, it's national populism. It's it's a lot of the shit we're dealing with now. But I mean, it was worse in South Africa because yeah. Jesus fucking Christ, when you read this history yeah so just a little bit of what went on after apartheid policies started being put into place officially black and indian citizens of south africa were pretty much immediately disenfranchised and denied voting rights the the quote-unquote coloreds and i know that's a it's not a great term yes Um, for our listeners scotty looks very uncomfortable. Yeah, I was very so uncomfortable. Saying, please well, know this isn't Scotty's language. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to have to say it a few more times. This was actually an official designation. Okay. Because um, in South Africa, colored meant mixed race. Oh, um, so like okay. the coloreds had like somewhat more rights than the indigenous black population or the Indian population. There are a lot of Indians in South Africa who brought in to like work on the rail. Kind of like how the Chinese came into our country and worked on the rail. Yeah. Like, similar history history you know um a lot of not not good not great stuff yeah so these groups were immediately being disenfranchised by this national party like i said the united party had begun to advocate for integration the national party was like nope they actually started before they took power they started an investigation which makes me it's like the like congressional investigations into whatever bullshit hunter biden yeah 
I think it's that kind of thing. Okay. So they started an investigation into this and decided that integration would, quote, bring about a loss of personality for all racial groups. So we're just, we're protecting all racial groups by keeping us separate. Yeah. Yeah. Your face is, that's the appropriate face. <laughs> I just, okay. Get, uh, continue. I'm not going to yeah. go off on a tangent on racist right now. Yeah. We'll save that for another episode. <laughs> so this, this idea about like, you know, no, we need to stop integration because we need to protect the personality of all racial groups. This became their campaign platform. And that's what led to them winning in 1948. So like when they won in 1948, it wasn't like dog whistle, you know, welfare queen type language that we got from like Reagan in this country. It was right. like, no, like we're keeping the races separate. That's why you need to vote for me. Right. Like straight up apartheid Ooh. segregationist politics so among the policies the white population was divided into two racial language groups uh the english and the afrikaans and then they divided the black population into 10 different groups and i think fairly arbitrarily it sounds like okay. the population registration act of 1950 formalized racial classification this led to everyone in the country being given an identity card with your race on it so essentially like the jewish star and Right. Germany. In your racial identity, the four races were determined to be white, black, Indian, and colored. Power was essentially concentrated entirely in white hands at this point. Okay. Uh, the black population was essentially 100% disenfranchised. And then it was determined that the Indian population, quote, has no historical right to the country. Just because we you know, basically brought them in an indentured servitude and made them work on our railroads. They have no right to our country. You look bothered. Do you have a right to that country? No. Like you're not, <laughs> sorry. Yep. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. No. Like this is the thing about colonizers that like, like drives, it makes me want to tear out my hair. Like mm -hmm. it's not yours either mm -hmm. fuckhead like mm -hmm. yeah no they, they it's just such a it, it, it's it's just the stupidest mm -hmm. like rationalization right about and just just go in there and say hey we're white and we want this place because there's either like resources or the view is nice yeah just or whatever it. the fuck just be like just no we're the it. bad guys we're the bad yeah guys. yes yeah. yes like just say we're bullies and we wanted to take over the world and we wanted to expand our empire we wanted your spices or your coastline or whatever the hell and so we're taking it but don't be like all mm, mm -hmm. you don't have it like yeah. I said I wasn't going to go on a rant about <laughs> no, it, and then I did. It, I, I knew it was probably going to happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I say, like, I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on this. So, like I said, the black population, the Indian population were immediately disenfranchised. The co colored population was progressively more disenfranchised over time. Okay. Classification was done using, like, all sorts of criteria, like outer appearance, texture of your hair, bone structure of your face. And then they would look at, like, family history, social standing, etc. Language, what languages you spoke. Um, but, like, this got real tricky when uh, we were talking about the colored population because mm -hmm. it was just kind of whoever the government decided was colored was right. called colored. Like, oh, your skin's a little bit darker than your brother's? Okay, you're colored, but your brother is white. So, like, breaking up the family, like, yeah, a white person was, like, this, I love this definition. And I'm really excited to see your uh, reaction to it. 
here's how a white person is defined uh, in South Africa. I can't wait. It's someone who in appearance is obviously a white person who is generally not accepted as a colored person or is generally accepted as a white person that is not in appearance obviously a white person. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, what? It's word salad. Like, what what is what what are you trying to say that just uh, yeah mm-hmm. yep. yeah <laughs> yeah so there you go the prohibition of mixed marriages act was passed in 1949 this banned of course white, it was it banned white people from marrying anyone of another race i don't think they give a fuck if you're black if you married an indian person or whatever like i think then you just all were the black right people. they just were like but no keep the white race pure right the immorality amendment act of 1950 made it illegal for a white person to have sex with anyone of another race the reservation of separate amenities act of 1953 created the separate infrastructure for blacks and whites so it's sort of like their version of jim crow okay this would tie into something called the bantu authorities act of 1951 this is i'm this is where like your head can just start to explode when you're okay. in South Africa. The Bantu Authorities Act of 1951 created separate structure for blacks and whites and was the first step toward the quote homeland system, which meant basically moving black people into what they called Bantu stands, which were think of it like a reservation, like a Native yep. American reservation. These were 10 reservations for black people that would be treated as separate sovereign nations within the borders of South Africa. In practice, they were basically open air prisons. Because there's no jobs, there's nothing like just no get get in here. Yeah, we're gonna close the gate. This is where you are now. And by the way, you're not South African citizens anymore. And then, of course, because they're so right wing, they also had the Suppression of Communism Act of 1950, which banned the Communist Party and basically expanded the definition of communism to anyone who disagreed with their their government. So th- this is important because I do want to make this point, and obviously. I'm not making, I'm not saying anything about equivalency or anything, but apartheid was bad for white people. Like, it wasn't just bad for black people and Indian people. It was bad for white people because it created, it turned South Africa into a pariah state. Mm. It made their government deeply, deeply right-wing, deeply paranoid. So basically any kind of like opposition was violently suppressed. Mm. They didn't allow television in the country, I think until like the 1970s. Like it's, like I'm trying to think of like a, like a fictional equivalent of this. Like it's like kind of like the Hunger Games world, but like. <laughs> that that popped into my head a, a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah. So like all, like South Africa missed like, the moon landing mm-hmm. and i mean i think they might have known stuff was going on but like you weren't right, allowed to watch tv right but they didn't see it yeah exactly yeah they're well and that's very important to the story actually okay. um because they like pop culture in south africa was completely divorced from pop culture worldwide and what you did have in south africa going back like pretty early into the apartheid era was you know you had this conservative right-wing national party power structure Mm. and even within the white population you had this like a lot of the younger people and stuff wanting to push against it Mm -hmm. Um, but they didn't really have any language or context for like how to protest how to right because they missed the civil like they they missed missed the civil rights movement in the united states they wow 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 enter rodriguez enter rodriguez got it oh yeah Um, right stories about him yeah exactly no but that's the crazy thing about this story is it's like you like they're not connected 
in any rational world. Rodriguez is like a local Detroit musician yeah. who didn't make it, but you know, good for him for following his dream or whatever. But mm. like, and then South Africa is South Africa, and they're not. It's like there's no Venn diagram that should overlap. Right. And yet. And yet. Rodriguez, it's it's unclear how he became a phenomenon in South Africa. There's all sorts of different rumors and stories. Like one of the stories is that like an American girl came and visited her boyfriend in South Africa and she brought his record. Okay. Cold facts. And people just started copying it, making, you know, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew from there. That doesn't really make sense because they were actually like selling like official releases and record stores and stuff. Okay. But Rodriguez over time became basically the most popular musician in South Africa. He was like the Beatles to the rest of the world was Rodriguez to South Africa. Weird. Okay. And some of it was because like he sang these anti-establishment songs and his records were heavily censored. And the way they would censor records in South Africa is they would actually take the vinyl. They would, you know, like if you've ever looked at, (laughs) sorry, all you youngs, let me explain vinyl records to you. (laughs) If you've ever looked at like an actual vinyl record, you know, you see, you can see the different songs, you know, the the Mm -hmm. groups. And so they would figure out which song they wanted to censor and they would take like a razor blade or something and they would scratch that song of the record, put it back in the sleeve and sell it in the record store. So like Rodriguez had all these songs that were censored on his records because he, he was a very anti-establishment musician. Yeah. Including the song Sugar Man because it's about a drug dealer. And, it, and it's like very explicit. Oh, drugs is where you draw the line, yeah. South Africa? Drugs is where you draw the line. Well, I think they censored inner city blues and like a lot of the like songs about poverty and stuff. Well, but the thing was like there was so much bootlegging and stuff. Like there were bootlegs of his records that made it into the country. And so pe- everyone like heard these songs anyway and so there was specifically an afrikaner youth movement in the 1970s and 80s that was really trying to agitate against apartheid Mm. and this conservative south african government and he really became like a central touchstone to them it was called the volry movement v-o-e-l-r-y movement it was centered around the afrikan music scene all of these bands were inspired by rodriguez Wow. They were all, I mean, the hero worshipped him. And it's interesting, like this documentary, they interview all these like, you know, now middle-aged South African musicians who just, I mean, they talk about him the way like people talk about John Lennon. Wow. Something changes in their voice when like they mention him. So like, okay, where was I? So like I said, you know, his music was being bootlegged all over the place, but it was being sold by actual record labels. Like you'd go to record store and buy probably the censored copy of it. But no one knew anything about him. There are these two albums and this kind of mysterious looking guy on the albums, mm. clearly not a white guy. Right. Like you don't look at Sixto Rodriguez and think like he could be Harrison Maplethorpe the third or something. Like I'm gonna look him up. I'm gonna look yeah. up a picture of him. Yeah. Okay, so clearly not a wide dude. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's no biographical information about him on the albums. Oh. There's and since he had failed as a musician in this country, there's no interviews with him. You know, because people knew the Beatles in South Africa, people knew Elvis. And be, you know, people would read magazines and here's a profile of Elvis Presley or whatever. There's nothing about Rodriguez so he becomes this like mythical almost like folk hero figure and so then people you know where there's an absence of information that creates a void which is going to be filled with bullshit yay okay fantastic basically it became known like not questioned that Rodriguez had killed himself that he had committed suicide 
Okay. And then the stories got more and more. Like one was, I think the base story was like he was performing in a club. Because I think word started getting around that like Rodriguez, everyone assumed he was like a huge, massive star in the US. And then people started hearing like, no, no one knows who the fuck he is once you're out of South Africa. So then people were like, oh, you know, he was a failed musician. He was playing at some dingy club somewhere. No one even knew what city he was from or anything. Oh, wow. He and, you know, he played a show and people booed him. So he reached and there's like a lyric in one of his songs where he like says the lyric and it's like a, like a goodbye line. And then he grabs a gun and shoots himself mm. on stage. Um, another and then oh. the story becomes like, no, he's actually like protesting injustice. He burned himself alive on stage. And then like. Oh, my God. Okay. You know, but the, but the yeah. story was like to the point where like newspapers were like, you know, the late musician Rodriguez okay everyone just like knew he was dead so come forward to you know this this starts in kind of the 70s he becomes i think massively huge in the 80s and then by the 90s mm-hmm. they're starting to re-release again these like south african record labels are releasing his albums on cd and there's a record store owner a guy named uh i think his name was sam Se- no steven Segerman. he's a okay. record store owner in cape town he went by sugar he was known okay. to be like if there was an authority on Rodriguez in South Africa, Stephen Sugar Segerman was he. Okay. So this record label approached Segerman to write the liner notes for the CD. And he wrote this thing where basically he was like, if there's ever been a bigger mystery than who is Rodriguez, I can't think of it. Basically, like, you know, we know nothing about this guy. And he puts a line in there where he says, Are there any musicologist detectives out there? And then like, you know puts this they released the cd Seaman had been trying to figure out what he could like he was trying to put things together to try and create a narrative of like who this guy was so he's particularly like he's looking at lyrics and like there's a song called can't get away and it's got a line where it says born in the troubled city in rock and roll usa he's like what, what the fuck is rock and roll usa um, but then the next line is, in the shadow of the tallest building. She's like, oh, maybe he was from Chicago because the Sears Tower is there. But then he's got mm-hmm. other songs that refer to Big Ben in London or Amsterdam or San Francisco. He has a song which talks about a dusty Georgian side road. So it was like, well, we have no fucking clue. So he writes these liner notes. They put this out there. And a music journalist named Craig Bartholomew, who had had the idea, it sounds like, years before, like, I should figure out how... Because he's, he's a music journalist. He's like, I should figure out how Rodriguez died. But then he kind of forgot about it. And then as he was reading the liner notes from the CD, he was like, oh, maybe it's me. Like, maybe I'm the musicologist detective. Mm. This is like my actual job. So he's like, okay. Um, he he contacted Steven Sigerman and was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. We're gonna, let's, let's, let's find out what we can about him. His idea was to try and follow the money. Basically, by looking, you know, there were these record labels who were officially releasing the album in the country. So, how did they have the rights to the album? Well, he, it's the whole tangled thing of like, you know, record labels fold and their catalog gets sold to this one and it's like, you know, licensing agreements and whatnot. But he was able to determine that there were essentially three different record labels that had released Rodriguez's records at different times in South Africa. One was AM Records, one was Teal True Tone, one was PT Music. AM was the first. To put out the records in the 70s and when you looked at the back of the album it said AM and then it also had the label or the logo for Sussex Records. So he was like, okay, okay, what's the Sussex Records? Well he manages to track down Sussex, but whenever he starts asking like uh well what happened like, you know because what he's trying to do is follow the royalties. It's like where are the royalty checks being sent because that's how he's gonna find out like his estate, mm-hmm. you know, whoever his survivors mm-hmm. are are going to be getting his royalties. Right. 
And he would just get a lot of like vague answers. And the one time he called and they're like, yeah, we'll get back to you. And they call back the next day and they change the number. So like, it was like, mm, something's not great here. So I'm extrapolating that also Rodriguez was not getting any yeah. royalties from this stuff. <laughs> not even a little bit. So, <sighs> so I mentioned early on Clarence Avant, the owner of Sussex, who signed him. Mm-hmm. He's actually interviewed in the documentary because like, so this, this, um, Craig Bartholomew, this journalist, he's saying, he's like, I could never quite get a hold of Clarence Avant. Like, it just got a lot of closed doors. And then at one point, the documentary filmmakers are interviewing him. And he's like, he's an older guy. He had run Motown Records for a while. And he's and they're showing him footage of Rodriguez. He's like, oh, yeah, that's my guy. Oh, you're making me emotional. Yeah, I don't know why it didn't work for him, blah, blah, blah. They're like, so the money. And he's like, why do you want to talk about that? Young man, this is not what this story is about. So it's like, I think we, I think we found the problem. <laughs> so that didn't get them anywhere because they're not really like this wasn't about trying to expose a record company that's ripping off a musician. Right. It was about like we're trying to find what happened to this guy. So that didn't work. So then they go back to the lyrics. Well, again, like the, you know, it's like San Francisco, Amsterdam, whatever. But then there's one line in the song Inner City Blues that refers to meeting to meeting a girl in Dearborn. And so Bartholomew was like, okay, that sounds like a town. Let's look that up. Yeah. He opens up his atlas, does the little cross-referencing thing, and it's like Dearborn, Michigan, right outside of Detroit. Wow. And then he's like, Detroit, you know, was the home of Motown. He's like, I'll bet this has got to be where he's based. And so through that, he's able to find Mike Theodore, who was the producer on uh, his first album. So he contacts Mike Theodore, and he says, he's like, I had 100 questions for him. And he was like, I want to know what did this lyric mean? And what was it? Blah, blah, blah. He says, and at the end, he was like, the big question was like, so how did he die? Like, tell me the true story of how Rodriguez died. And Mike Theodore is like, he's not dead. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, six toes alive and kicking, living in Detroit. So, okay, solve the mystery. Rodriguez is alive. What I don't understand, it's not clear from the document. It doesn't sound like they then tried to contact him. Hmm. I don't know if it's maybe like Mike Theodore didn't know how to get a hold of him or what, hmm. because they set up a website that had a picture of Rodriguez on a milk carton. Um, it was like, have you seen this man? <laughs> and they ref- and then Craig Bartholomew, like Steven Sigerman set that up. And then Craig Bartholomew, I think, refers to the website or something in the article, which he published. He published this article in South Africa. Well, somehow the article made it over to the U.S. and it made it into the hands of Sixto's daughter, Eva, his oldest daughter. And it was like, has anyone seen this man? And she's funny in the document. She's like, as a matter of fact, I have. That's my father. <laughs> um, so she goes, she went online and she found the website and she posted. She was like, yeah, I'm I'm Rodriguez's daughter. If you want to know more, like, let me know. And she left her contact information. So like right away, Stephen Singerman, he sees this on the website. I think his like business partner was like, hey, have you looked at the website? This woman contacted us. So he calls her and he says they had this like long conversation and she's telling him all about her father's life in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And now he's just still working as a day laborer, still running, you know, ran for me, all, all the things, you know, that I said. And he's like, did you know that he is like massively huge in South Africa? And she was like, no, like, they had no idea. Um, he was like, well, I'd love to just talk to your dad someday just to say hello. She's like, okay, well, you know, thank you. Nice conversation. They hang up. 1 a.m. that night, his phone rings. And he answers. He says he recognized the voice right away. Like, Is this Sugar? And it was Rodriguez. It was Sixto Rodriguez. Hmm. Um, so they talked for a long time. And again, Steven Sigerman to Sixto was like, 
you're bigger than Elvis here. And Sixto was like, no. Kind of thought he was fucking with him. He's like, no, yeah. like, I promise you are, you don't understand. Like, you are, you are kind of a god here. Wow. And he was like, trust me, just come here. We'll set up some concerts and you won't be disappointed. And so Sixto was like, oh, okay, whatever. Like, I think they're all thinking like, oh, maybe I have a little cult following, kind of like what happened in Australia, you know? Right. Like, so he and his daughters and I think like his grandkids all fly out to South Africa. This is in 1998, uh, March of 98. Okay. They fly to Cape Town and they talk, and like his daughter talks about they get off the plane and there's all these limos there. And they're like, oh, we need to like, someone important is here. We need to like get, they're trying to walk around the limos to like call a cab. And the oh. limo driver's like, no, we're, we're here for you. <laughs> and this is of course after apartheid is done you know this is the late 90s so like you know apartheid ended in i think 91 okay um so we're we're talking about a new country at this point okay so you know they they kind of like i think steven Seagerman's taking them around showing them all cape town all this stuff and they're starting to get a sense of like like as they're driving past the airport there's all these like banners hanging from lampposts that are six does face it's like rodriguez one night only at the blah 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 and it's like Sign after sign after sign after sign, you know. And they're like, what the fuck? So they finally go check out the venue. And it's not a club. It's like the big soccer stadium or rugby <laughs> stadium or whatever. Oh, my God. For a guy who, like, can't face the audience when yeah. he's performing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they and they paired him up with, there's a popular South African band called Big Sky who was going to open for them. But then they realized, well, Sixto, he doesn't have a band can we pair you up with these guys so you have a backing band? He was like, okay. Remember, like, he had been so uncomfortable playing with his backing band originally yeah. that, like, he couldn't record with them. Yeah. They were like, okay, like, sure. So, you know, he rehearses, and the guys in Big Sky are obviously, they're, like everyone else in South Africa, they're huge fans. They're like, oh, my God, we're playing with Rodriguez. Like, this is amazing. That night, they go to perform, and they have footage of it in the documentary. It's like, if you've seen footage of like metallica playing at this stadium or you know elton john playing at uh, madison square Garden. it's that like it is packed to the fucking rafters arena wow and he and you see sixta just goes out on stage with his guitar this backing band and that and it was like everyone sees him and just starts screaming like wow he says it, it took like 10 minutes for people to quiet down enough for him to like start and he fucking killed it. Like he just, and you see it. Like in the thing, he was. It was just like, and he had said he was like he he felt like when he played in South Africa, he was like, oh, I finally found my way. Mm. And so they ended up doing six sold out concerts all around the country. Wow. All of them were big stadium shows. And then he went back, <laughs> and and his daughter talks about it like, yeah, and then we had to go back to the real world. <laughs> yeah, what a um, trip. Yeah, and and he like he basically gave all his money away. He made a bunch of money on this, and he gave it all to like family and friends. He moved back to the same. I think it's kind of a little row house in Woodbridge, um, uh, Michigan. Michigan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I almost said Minnesota, but you know, just kind of he like he was never into it for any of that stuff. Mm. He did return to South Africa and in play several times in the decades since. He also went and played in Europe. He played some big festivals in Europe and stuff. And he basically had the second wind of his career. But he was, you know, at this point he was already, I think, pushing 60 or, you know. Yeah. So he was just like, I mean, I'm going to enjoy it, but I'm not going to. Like, he wasn't chasing. Yeah. Never released another album. You know, just would go play these occasional 
massive stadium shows then he would go back to detroit and like hang out in his house where like he didn't have a phone you know he did in 2022 just before his 80th birthday apparently they finally settled with the record company and he did get at least some of the royalties that were owed to him Mm. um another thing his daughter i think it was eva his oldest daughter fell in love with i think the lead singer of big sky and she ended up she now lives in south africa so he has like little south african grandkids now and just about a week ago, August 8th of this year, uh, he passed away at age 81. It, I didn't see, like, any, I don't think they've released any cause of death, but I mean, probably just, like, natural causes. Yeah. Um, There have been all sorts of tributes to him. If you Google Sixto Rodriguez, you'll see. Yeah. All over the internet. And, um, yeah. And like I said, his music's genuinely good. So, like, if you, uh, I'd never heard of him before. I wa- I saw the, the Searching for Sugar Man documentary. And after that, kind of started listening to his music. And he's like he was genuinely like he kind of should have hit big but yeah the way it goes is do you know if that documentary is available anywhere yeah i watched it on max again like um so you can watch it on hbo max i think i also saw that it's like i said it was it won the oscar i believe in 2012 i think okay um so it was was like it's a pretty popular documentary that's why i say like this story is not all that um obscure because like the documentary kind of really popularized right and he finally like has his following in the u.s because of the documentary so wow until 2012 but yeah you know it's never too late yeah yeah i think it's a great just like never give up never give up story you know yeah and he is like the most likable i mean he is super awkward he's a terrible interview but you can just tell he's just like a genuine guy you know like i said his his daughter's clearly like that's always like you know how does your family feel about you (laughs) it kind of says like what type of person you really are you know what the fans think of you doesn't matter yeah what does your family think and clearly his daughters just loved him to death so yeah just life well lived Sixto rodriguez so well r.i.p r.i.p um wow that's a great story i'll uh, i'll uh, i'm not gonna put obviously i'm not gonna put the songs in the episode but i'll we'll throw some of the stuff up on social media yes fantastic amazing well yeah. done okay i'm um, you know i'm gonna start with a cold open because you know how much i love them all right let's do it so throughout the throughout like the 1980s there were all of these like Hollywood and New York A-list men. And they were like big names like Richard Gere, Robert mm-hmm. De Niro, Billy Joel, Warren Beatty, etc. And these men mm-hmm. spent like many, many nights talking on the phone with this woman named Miranda. She would call them and she would like chat about what they were working on and what they were doing. She would like gossip about Hollywood. She would talk to them about the other famous men that she knew. And she was super engaging and charming and funny and flirty and warm. The only problem was that Miranda didn't exist. Mm. So today I'm going to tell you the strange and unbelievable story of Miranda Grosner. Sources for this are Vanity Fair, The Hollywood Reporter, Esmoda.com, The Advocate, The Austin Chronicle, and CBS 48 Hours. Mm. Okay. This is truly like one of the weirder <laughs> and more mysterious stories that I have told on the podcast. The only I've thing never that really, yeah, the only thing that really can come close to it is the most mysterious song mm-hmm. on the internet. Yeah. 
Like that story, the story is big on strange details and small on answers. Mm. The majority of the details come from the men that Miranda talked to, and for reasons which will soon become obvious, many of them don't want to admit that they were part of her like vast network of powerful men. The story is full of loose threads, and the men who are willing to talk have little more than their side of the story and the stuff that they heard from Miranda. Right. So, okay, it would go like this. You'd be at home or at work, or maybe you'd be in a hotel room, and you'd get a phone call. These first phone calls always seem to come in the evening. The phone would ring, and a woman's voice would ask for you by name. When you'd ask, who's this? She would say that her name was Miranda, though she also sometimes used the name Ariana and something along the lines of, we met at Quincy Jones's party a few months back or Warren introduced us that night at the restaurant, like Mm. things like that. She might also say that she had the wrong number and she'd be like, who is this? Who am I talking to? And when the men would answer, she'd be like, oh, you're the guy who runs Odeon or, oh, you wrote The Graduate. Hmm. Stuff like that. She was immediately charming. She was quick-witted and funny and sexy, though every man who, like, admits to having talked to her is very clear that, like, this was not phone sex. There was nothing, like, salacious. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, she was really skilled at, like, skirting around anything tawdry. It's it's just that, like, able to just, like, dangle the carrot just enough. Yeah. She flattered these Mm -hmm. men with, like, thoughtful insights about their work and their industries. She had opinions that set her apart from like your run-of-the-mill groupie or sycophant Hmm. and like she just she knew things she knew what directors were considering what projects who was secretly Hmm. dating who and most importantly she like understood these men Hmm. she understood their insecurities their feelings of failure and inadequacy she understood their addictions their broken hearts all of these are all like super famous men like yeah successful yeah again 80s warren Beatty, robert de niro (laughs) richard Gere. yeah yeah as far as i can tell her like patient zero is unknown Mm -hmm. like we don't know who got the first phone call and when we do know that actor screenwriter and director buck henry who wrote Mm. the graduate scotty i'm sure you can rattle off some more things that buck henry has done he showed up on snl a lot back i was gonna say i knew he did snl and i'm trying to remember if he i think i'm confusing with someone else if he had something to do with dr strange love but maybe i don't i don't remember but he got his first call in like 1980 or 1981 and Mm -hmm. he describes it as like being at a hotel and he gets this phone call and it's like A long distance operator like puts the phone call through. Mm. Okay. Strange. Paul Schrader, who Paul Schrader was a screenwriter, director, director. taxi driver. Yes. Uh, Still Um, still kicking today. Yes. Still kicking today. He got his first phone call in 1981 when he was at his hotel in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. He was in New Orleans filming Cat People. (laughs) Which I love that fucking movie. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Brian McNally, he was a restaurateur who was responsible for Odeon. And I don't know if you know Odeon, but you might know Indochine. Like, I think if you were in New York in the 80s, Indochine was like 
serious. Okay. It was a place to like see and be seen. Mm. So he got his first phone call and this one started out as an alleged wrong number at his Tribeca loft in 1982. Mm. Record producer Richard Perry got his first phone call at home in 1982, but he spoke to Ariana, not Miranda. Hmm. Okay. Okay. She told the men that she talked to varying things about herself. She was 23. She was British. She was from the South. She was part of an old Southern moneyed family. She lived in New York. She lived in Baton Rouge. She went Mm -hmm. to NYU. She graduated from Tulane. She was a model. She was calling from Milan or New Orleans or London. She drove a fire red Porsche and she would allude to the fact that she was blonde and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was clear. Painting a a picture for these guys. Absolutely painting a picture of a very like sophisticated Mm -hmm. woman. Right. It was also very clear that Miranda had done extensive research on the men she called. Like she knew their resumes. She knew their interests. Like I said, she knew their insecurities. She knew exactly what to say to them to keep them on the phone with that first call. She would like ease them open through her enchanting conversation. Mm -hmm. She might call someone like Buck Henry and say that she thought that The Graduate was one of the funniest films she'd ever seen, but that she loved Loved First Family, which was a movie that he did that like tanked. So, yeah, she knew what she was doing. She knew what she was doing. And that ease would allow her to collect little bits of information from all of the men that she talked to. So Paul Schrader said, quote, the information she had on people was very accurate. She knew who was where and who was going to do what project. Once that happened, you got into the game, too, because she knew half the dirt on someone and you added 10 percent. And then she took that 60 percent and went on to the next person. And there was always sort of a tease how good looking she was. Mm -hmm. It was all about talking, flirting, power networking. Mm-hmm. Brian McNally, the mm-hmm. restaurateur, says that right. she called him up at Odeon one night during the dinner rush and she was like, who's there? And McNally was like, uh, you know, looked around and was like this person and this person and this person, including Anglo-Irish journalist Alexander Coburn. Mm-hmm. Miranda was like, I know him. And McNally was like, no, you don't. And she was like, take the receiver to over to him. Mm-hmm. And so McNally does and Coburn grabs the receiver and he's like, hi, Miranda. <laughs> Weird. (laughs) Yeah. So all of this is going on and Buck Henry's suspicions are like, like his spidey sense is starting to tingle. Yeah. He had been talking to her once trying to get some information when Miranda told him he would meet someone she knew the following Tuesday night. Henry was like, okay. Yeah. But the following Tuesday, Henry was a guest on The Tonight Show. Mm. And during a commercial break, it hit him and he leaned over and he asked Johnny Carson. He was like, hey, do you know Miranda Grosvenor? Tall, long legs, blonde hair. And Johnny fucking Carson goes, yeah, I was at 21, which is a restaurant in New York. He says, yeah, I was at 21 and this beautiful woman with long blonde hair comes up to me and she says, will you give my love to Buck Henry the next time you see him? What's and Henry going is, on? <laughs> yeah, and Henry is like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. And it was like, she had all of these little things that added to her credibility, right? Like people would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I met this like funny, charming, beautiful blonde at a party or like. So, I mean, so there is like some beautiful blonde out there. Like the, that wasn't completely fake. So, or, okay. 
right. hold on. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, hold on. So like somebody would have a memory, somebody would like come back to their hotel room and there'd be like a message or a package or a letter. Mm-hmm. And the front desk person would be like, yeah, this beautiful blonde woman in a fire red Porsche and like with a Corgi dropped it off. Hmm. Um, There were things like she, you know, she would be like, I have to go. I can't talk. Like I have to get off the phone because I'm waiting for a car to take me to the airport. I'm going to Milan to do this shoot. And then people would hear like a car honking in the background. Hmm. A lot of them said that an operator would break into the call mm-hmm. and say things like senator kennedy was calling from aspen like what? all of this yeah 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 like all of this stuff that everybody was like well it feels too good to be true right but i'm like cross-referencing with the people that she says that she's talked to and they all talk to her and some of them are like yeah 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 yeah, i've met her she came up to me you know at this restaurant right. at a party or whatever and they all have the stories about how they're how much they're talking to her and how how like incredible it is mm-hmm. you know and how fun and charming and all of these things she is okay so these men who and I'm, I'm going to list a ton of names and it is not an extensive list, mm-hmm. but these men who included Buck Henry, Brian McNally, Johnny Carson, Alex Coburn, Richard Perry, Paul Schrader, Billy Joel, Quincy Jones, mm-hmm. Warren Beatty, Ted Kennedy, Robert De Niro, Bob Dylan, Sting, Richard Gere, Steve Winwood, Peter Wolf, Art Garfunkel, tennis player Vitas Gerlitis. Eric Clapton, and many, many more. I was going to say, like that's not that's not Z-listers. No. <laughs> no. They would all talk to each other about her. Wow. And she would, like, facilitate meetings between men she thought could do something for each other. Like, I think it's Schrader who has this. Is it Schrader? I think it's Schrader who has a story of being a big fan of this football player. And Miranda's like, oh, I know him. And he was like, okay. And then the guy, whoever it was, is like at he's he's gone to Michigan to see this football game and Mm -hmm. he's at his hotel and the phone rings and it's the footballer. And he's like, hi, Miranda told me to call you. Weird. Yeah. This is super. Yeah, this is. Yeah. Because I'm like, if there's a long con here. I'm not seeing it. Like, it's. Yeah. yeah. So some of the men were like devastated to find out that she was like having similar dynamics with other, other right. men. Others like Billy Joel, who left messages on her answering machine, working out new songs, knew he was one of many. And he said, quote, a lot of nights she was my only friend. Wow. And like it had not like met her just like this phone conversation. Yeah. Surprisingly, the men almost always pushed to meet Miranda or Ariana in Richard Perry's case in person. Mm -hmm. And they would set up dates in like hotel bars or restaurants. And Miranda would either make up excuses as to why she couldn't meet. You know, she Mm -hmm. was like, oh, my modeling career is taking me like out of the country for the next two months. Or like I have to study or I have to like take care of my father, whatever. Or she would stand them up completely only to call them later and to be like, why didn't you meet me at the bar? And the guy would be like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about at that bar? We said that we were meeting at this bar. And she'd be like, no, we didn't. We said we were meeting at this place. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's diabolical. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's, it's nutty. Yeah. There were some men like Billy Joel who were happy you know, like he said, just to have someone engaging to pass the time with. Sure. 
But like I mentioned, Buck Henry was starting to like really be like, what is happening? Yeah, this is weird. Yeah. And I imagine, especially with somebody like Buck Henry, who was in a, you know, sort of a time in his career Mm -hmm. and having this woman that he was talking to, but also like she was never like all of the things coming together. It was probably pretty hard for him to not be like, this is some kind of a con. Sure. Like what's, you know, what do you want from me? Right. At his request, and this was this was kind of the thing that like really set Buck Henry was like sent him off. Like he was mm-hmm. like, "What the fuck is happening?" At his request, Miranda sent him a photo of herself. It was a photocopy of a picture from a magazine because remember she's mm-hmm. a model. Right. When when Buck Henry showed that photograph to a friend, the friend was like, "That's so and so, and she's an American model. Like I know who that is." Mm-hmm. Name was not Miranda. <laughs> like so, she just found some fucking like rando. Yeah. And like she, I think, yeah. And like she had told Buck that she was British. And so Mm. the guy's like, that's an American model. Like, I know who she is, blah, blah, blah. By his own admission, Henry became obsessed with discovering who she was. Um, I feel like I would have been him in this. Like, I would have got, like, I I just, like, I need a fucking answer. Well, as we know with (laughs) the prank that was recently pulled on you and all the Jesus paraphernalia (laughs) that was left on your house, yes, that is exactly how you would respond. Yeah, (laughs) and I would 100% assume that it was, like, I was about to be murdered or something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So um, he says, I think it's in the Vanity Fair article, that he's like, I collected and I'm still collecting stories about her. Like I have enough to fill a book about Mm -hmm. her. And like to even sit down and tell you the full story would take like 10 hours. So he's like on a mission. He's, he's, he's dogged in wanting to figure out who the hell she is. So he gets some help and he reverse tracks her phone number and he comes up with an address in Louisiana and a name. Mm -hmm. And that name is Whitney Walton. Okay. He also discovered a 1978 clipping from the Baton Rouge State Times with a quote from Walton talking about how local elderly people could avoid being scammed by con artists. Mm. When Henry confronted Miranda with what he had found out, she replied like, what did it matter? She was adorable. He was adorable. So what? And he, I think, like, continued to take her phone calls because he was just like, well, yeah, at this, point, at this point, because you gotta, like, I would, I would just have to try and understand what's going through this person's head. Yeah, because Henry knew that Richard Perry was deep, was like in very deep with Miranda slash mm-hmm. Ariana. He told Perry what he had found out, and Perry was like devastated and really angry with Henry. He was like convinced. And he was convinced that Henry was, like, trying to ruin his relationship with Ariana. And, like, Mm. Perry knew that she was talking to other people under the name Miranda. But Perry was convinced that Henry was doing this because he was, because Henry was in love with Miranda and, like, wanted to keep her for himself. He he didn't see the fact that she's talking to all these other men with a different name as, like, a red flag. He says in the Vanity Fair article, he's like, I don't know, man, I was, like, I was just in too deep. And she caught him like he had just come out of a long-term relationship Ooh. the first time she called him. Question. And he talks, yeah. Um, and and you may if if you're getting to this and I'm jumping I'm jumping the gun, uh don't answer, just get it to, to it in your own time. But um mm-hmm. was she like asking for money from any of these people? Like 
was was there any financial stake for her? In no. This? That's, no. Not, that's so weird. No, she I think maybe a couple of people might have like un like unrequested have like sent like might have sent her like small things. But she's not like she's not milking she, this Richard Perry for his like fucking Nope. Nope. She's just calling and talking to them. Wow. Yeah. Um, so like I was saying, she got Perry, like right after he had come out of a relationship, Mm -hmm. he talks about how he would like rush home from work, make a dinner, grab a glass of wine, and then spend the rest of the evening talking to her on speakerphone. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So Perry hears this and he's like, devastated by this super hurt he's mad at henry but he does eventually start to be like who the fuck am i talking to right and over his next several phone calls with ariana he does get some information out of her Mm -hmm. she says whitney walton was her real name that she had called dozens of famous men and that Mm -hmm. she didn't really know why she did it he said that she which what well just like (laughs) so it's like a compulsion for her at least that's what she's kind of saying He said that she referred to what she did as, quote, jacking men, that the men that she was able to get and keep on the phone were jackable. Hmm. And that what she got from it was the knowledge that she could make any man on the planet fall in love with her. I mean, that's kind of evil, kind of diabolical. But like, at the same time, she's not like, you could ask, like, what, you know, what's the harm? You know, she's not, she's not conning people, but there's still something like very. And I, I think what's interesting, right. And I think what's interesting about this is that if she was doing this to like regular old, like everyday Joe kind of guys who maybe had never had a connection like this, or maybe didn't have access to like beautiful, glamorous women, I would probably feel a little bit worse for them. Mm Mm-hmm. But like Billy Joel would go on to marry Christy Brinkley, right? Well, <laughs> like, but this is interesting. Well, I don't, I don't want to, like, I don't want to like hijack your story, but like, mm-hmm. there's all this talk right now about this. You know, men are in crisis, and it's this epidemic of loneliness that's going on with men. Yeah, and like they're like, you know, one thing that is very true of most men is like men don't make friends very easily. Yeah. There's something about her dynamic with them. Because, yeah, you can say they're falling in love with her, and I'm sure on some level they are. But like Billy Joel said, it's like sometimes he felt like she was his only friend. Because the thing is, when you're in that um, rarefied world of Hollywood, whatever, yep, who's your friend there? Like, who can you really trust, you know? Like, I mean, clearly yep. not the crazy lady on the phone who you don't know. But, like... But they did. But they did. Like, she got yeah. past all the defenses. And I think... I think like the fact that she wasn't, you know, she wasn't like fishing for them to get into these like really dirty, like phone sex calls. She wasn't like, oh, it'd be so nice if you like sent me something. She wasn't for all intents and purposes outside of what she felt, which was like, wow, I can get these like really powerful men to not only take my calls, but to like become very invested in me. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything else that she was really quote unquote getting from it Mm -hmm. Um, it's very much a power thing you know yeah and like i said she like knew how to talk to these men and she like 
created this safe space for them to, like I said, like talk about their insecurities and their vulnerabilities, right? Because their feelings she, of failure. And if she turned it into stuck. like dirty sex talk, it wouldn't have become what it became. With no, reason, you know, no. It's more yeah. about like she saw them. Like it's like being seen. Like there's everyone thinks they know me, but you actually see me. Kind of. Yeah, which is funny because. You would think that hearing her say all this stuff would have like extinguished Richard Perry's feelings for her. But the opposite was true. He felt that he was the one man who really knew her. Interesting. Yeah. Eventually, after like several phone calls discussing this, Whitney slash Ariana slash Miranda, I think I'm going to be referring to her as Whitney from here on out. Mm -hmm. She agrees to meet Perry in person in New York City. Mm -hmm. And she's like... I will do this. I want to stay in separate hotels okay. because he was like, we could stay in the same hotel. We could stay in the same room. And she was like, I want to stay in separate hotels. And he was like, mm. okay. So this is like one of the few things that she got. Perry mails Whitney a plane ticket. Mm. And when Perry landed in New York, he was met at the airport by a friend of Whitney's who had been introduced to him over the phone by Whitney. Okay. Perry's like, okay. He tells the friend, if you really care about Whitney, if she's not the person that she's made herself out to be, tell me now so that I can prepare myself so she won't have to see in my face the shock and let down of knowing I've been conned. Mm -hmm. And he said that Whitney's friend paused and she said, she's not. Mm -hmm. So Perry was like, oh, it. Mm -hmm. But he had to like follow it through to the end. So the next day he goes to Whitney's hotel room. He knocks on the door. Door is unlocked. She says, come on in. And when he entered, he found a dark room with just the curtains open. So the only light coming into the room was the light from New York City. Mm -hmm. He sort of followed Whitney's voice over to the bed. And as his eyes adjusted, he saw this small, frumpy, blonde woman sitting on the edge of the bed next to him. Mm-hmm. This is from this is a direct quote from the Vanity Fair article. Quote, she wasn't ugly, but she wasn't, he realized, in a moment of self-loathing and almost unbearable sadness, a woman he could spend his life with. Mm-hmm. I felt I had been conned, he says today. Thank God I had been prepared. Mm-hmm. The two went to what I'm sure was the most awkward dinner ever. Mm-hmm. And Perry was really honest with Whitney. He said, I, like, I'm deeply disappointed. And she replied that she'd hoped Perry could see beyond the deception, but he couldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah. I like this, it, it would be easy to be like, oh, he was superficial and blah, blah, blah. Like, but, but I mean, she'd been lying to him. Like, you know, so it's like, it's not just about that. Oh, she wasn't the hot blonde. It's like, right. The, this makes it concrete that this woman had been playing him like you can't trust her you know yeah so yeah. it's not just about like oh you're not as pretty as i thought you were yeah and he talks that like they met again the next night mm-hmm. and she was sort of like it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter like we have this foundation that we have built on this stuff and he was like i i, I can't i can't trust you right so Perry returned to LA and a few weeks later he received a handwritten note at his own at his home that only said, quote, you have broken my windows and crashed through all my doors. W. Mm. So who the fuck was Whitney Walton? Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> Brian Burrow, who wrote the Vanity Fair article, and that article was written in 1999. He traced her back to an address in Baton Rouge near the LSU campus. Okay. He found about a half dozen mentions of Walton during the 90s, including a thank you letter that she wrote for donations made to Head Start and other programs that serve disadvantaged kids. Burrow actually ended up traveling to Baton Rouge to see if he could track her down in person and his search led him to the Head Start offices, which were located in an elementary school in a poor part of town. He recounts asking for Whitney Walton and a, quote, weary looking woman around 50, maybe five feet six and 250 pounds, shows up replying that she was Whitney Walton. Okay. When pressed about whether she was Miranda Grovesner, Burroughs said Walton became irritated, saying that she didn't know anything about that. There were lots of Whitney Waltons, that this was intrusive and invasive. Mm. Burroughs leaves her office and he said, quote, I sense not the slightest whiff of joie de vivre of curiosity, of playfulness or whimsy. In fact, it is impossible to reconcile this woman with the stories told of her. Later that night, unable to sleep, wondering how to handle the contradiction, I returned to the tidy off-campus duplex where Whitney Walton lives. In the rear carport sits a fire-red Porsche. Hmm. Burrow tracked down old co-workers of Walton's from yeah. her time working at a battered woman's center in Baton Rouge. And they like giggle as they remember Miranda and Ariana. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We remember she also used Ariana, like Ariana. So they knew. So she wasn't keeping the secret, like Mm -mm. in her world. No, she remembers, or they remember the stories that Whitney told of her famous friends. They even recall hearing the answering machine messages from Billy Joel as he worked on the songs that would end up on his An Innocent Man album. Wow. Yeah. Miranda's calls stopped coming sometime in the mid to late 80s, and nobody like really knows why. But there are rumors that she disappeared after receiving threats from Vita Scarolitis's lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, the 1999 Vanity Fair article outed Whitney Walton as the woman behind Miranda Grovesner. Mm-hmm. Buck Henry, Brian McNally, Richard Perry, Billy Joel, and a few others agreed to talk on the record about Miranda. Mm-hmm. Still, Warren Beatty, Peter Wolf, Richard Gere, Michael Apted, Art Garfunkel, Bob Dylan, Ted Kennedy, Eric Clapton, Sting, and Robert De Niro declined to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because in 2000, Harper Collins apparently paid close to $1 million for Walton's memoir titled Miranda Writes, My Life is the Mysterious Hollywood Sweet Talker. Wow. And in 2001, De Niro himself purchased the film rights to the story. In 2007, online book retailers advised a January 2008 release of the book, with some even offering pre-sales of the audio version. In January of 2008, HarperCollins reported that the memoir had been canceled. No reason has ever been given as to why. Well, and I wonder if he bought the film rights maybe to like make sure no one else got them, and it's a way to make sure that no movie's ever made. Well, and it's so funny because Billy Joel, and there's like Hollywood access mm-hmm. inner like no sorry access Hollywood interviews with Billy Joel and stuff where he talks openly about it mm-hmm. and he's like yeah and we would like share these phone calls and I would like leave her messages of the songs that I was working on and he's like I still he was like I th- I think it would make a great movie I think like so he's get a really great musical out of it yeah so he's like unbothered by the whole thing completely again because 
because yeah. motherfucker went on to marry Christy Brinkley. Sure. Like he was like, whatever. I mean, like, you know, Richard Gere went on to marry Cindy Crawford. I mean, you know, all these guys. I think it's interesting to see the men who are mm-hmm. like, yes, this happened. And in within that subgroup, the men who were like, yeah, man, weirdest story ever, like Billy Joel. And then the men like Buck Henry, who was still like, I like, I don't, I don't know what was going on. Like betrayed kind of thing. Mm-hmm, to yeah. Richard Perry, who like yeah. when he's interviewed in the Vanity Fair article, Burrow talks about how like it's hard for Richard Perry to talk about it. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's like, well, it sounds like he really did. I mean, it sounds like Billy Joel never fell in love with her, you know? Was yeah. Just like, maybe that's it. You know, this is like my weird phone friend. And then yeah. find out, Oh, my weird phone friend was weirder than I thought she was. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. But does yeah. Richard Perry like really like, yeah. You know, he got feels. To me, it is unsurprising what I know about Richard Gere. It is unsurprising to me that he would be like, I am not, talking about this <laughs> yeah like, i mean i'm not real surprised that robert de niro would either you know same yeah honestly um her younger brother lynn confirms that walton was in fact miranda grosner but says that her life's work as a social worker and a friend was far more telling of his sister's accomplishments mm-hmm. he said she was full of laughter she was five feet tall and had dyed blonde hair always with a smile on her face she knew everybody and everybody knew her it's really interesting to see how the articles frame Walton, mm-hmm. Whitney. Uh, some paint a picture of a con artist and the men that she talked to as like victims, right? Mm-hmm. Like complete and utter victims. Others kind of paint her as like this delusional groupie. Um, and others still tell the story of a wildly charming woman who could and did talk to everyone. Um, yeah. I have no idea what the real story is, but well, I yeah i was gonna say have you ever seen the documentary catfish it's where the term catfishing comes from yeah like the woman in that from what i remember is kind of similar where like when when it came right down to it it was like she was kind of lonely kind of she got caught up in this thing yeah like it wasn't necessarily like bad intentions you know the thing that i think is interesting about this is that she would do the first phone call Mm mm-hmm And everyone who talks about it is like, I told her to call back. Mm -hmm. I told her to keep calling. So she's just real charming. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not, with the exception of like, how did she get the phone numbers in the first place? Mm -hmm. This isn't, and I'm sure that there are countless men who got one phone call from her and they were like, I don't know who the fuck you are. I'm not interested in talking to you. Don't call me. (laughs) Bye. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and she was like, okay, try it. Move on to the next. Yeah, I'll try Ted Kennedy. Um, (laughs) So, like I was saying, I have no idea what the real story is, but I think this quote from a letter she wrote to Perry after their disastrous meeting in New York might give us the most insight into who she really was and what she truly wanted. The quote says, On a good day, I feel like a shipwrecked person spotting the sight of some nearing shore, a taste in the wind, a softness in the light, a sudden passage of words. Love is so easy in the movies. No conflicts are too hopeless to resolve. Mm. No obstacles too painful to overcome. No resolutions too final for last minute reconsideration. Love means forever in the movies. Not to worry. What was ignited when I loved you continues to burn. In February of 2016, Whitney Walton, the woman who enchanted dozens of the most powerful and influential men of the 80s, died quietly in Baton Rouge, having never married or had Mm. children. 
She was 74 years old. And that is the strange and fascinating tale of Miranda Grosvenor. Well, there's still some like weird hole. Cause like, who was the blonde woman? The, who was the blonde I mean, woman? Clearly she who had was the, the operator? Right. <laughs> like there is so much stuff that it's and, like. Well, she had these friends who knew about So I wonder if she was like, had her friends like helping her out, playing roles. Like. Because, I mean, okay, she had the Porsche, but she was clearly not the statuesque blonde woman that, like, left the gift or whatever. Yeah. So, like, it's so weird. Um, that's crazy. On the the episode of 48 Hours, Brian Burrow is, is like, doing the story. And this mm-hmm. was done in, like, 2012, 2013. So, you know, almost 15 years after he'd released the Vanity Fair article. Right. And, like, they're talking to Buck Henry. Buck Henry does the Johnny Carson story. Mm-hmm. And then you see Burrow on the phone. And he had tracked Miranda down again. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I will talk to you. You can't. Like you're, it's just going to be my voice mm-hmm. and you can't tell anybody the real name, the name that I'm using right now. Okay. And he was like, absolutely. So he, Burrow recounts the Johnny Carson story mm-hmm. and she's like, that never happened. And he's like, what do you mean it never happened? And she was like, I, she was like, I never met Johnny Carson. She was like, I talked to him mm-hmm. and he was a lot different from the person that he was on TV. Like he Oof. was kind of dry and really mm-hmm. shy. She was like, but I never met him. Interesting. Yeah. And and can here's, you trust her? Like, I well, but here's the thing. Like, he, this was a thing that popped into my head, right? Is she's calling all of these powerful men mm-hmm. and she's dropping, you know, like she's dropping these names and she's doing all this stuff. And she's not doing a thing of like, well, you might know some of the people, like I know like Robert De Niro. She'll be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, Bobby De Niro, you know, I know that he, like she's mentioning them in passing. Mm-hmm. And she's this very charming woman and she's like super enchanting. And these guys are like, okay, well, these other guys know her as well. And I wonder how much of it was like a subconscious or unconscious like pissing contest. It had to be at least to a degree for some of these guys. And being like, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. Or, or like not wanting to know that they didn't know who she was mm-hmm. or, you know, becomes, whatever. She becomes a weird status symbol. Yeah. Like that, which is weird and kind of twisted in its own way. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, Very it does, strange. It does strike me. Like, as you were telling the story, I was thinking, because like, I've just been reading all these stories about, you know, this this quote-unquote epidemic of loneliness, which is, and which is interesting for me, because I've been like, I don't know, I haven't been really feeling that. But then I'm like, but you know what I, what I do that a lot of my male friends don't do is I have a lot of female friends. And like, you know, I think if I didn't have that, it would be different. You have also built relationships with the women who are your friends Mm -hmm. wherein you trust us enough to should the need arise that you're like hey man Mm -hmm. i gotta i gotta be around some people or Mm -hmm. i'm feeling kind of down can we go and do something right you know like you have those kind of like open honest yeah so friendships with people look i don't know this Richard Perry or whatever his name is, but like, I've got to imagine, you know, this is a guy who just felt isolated, you know, and you can be at the top of your, I mean, look at Kurt Cobain, you know, you can be at the quote unquote top of your game and feel totally isolated and totally like you lonely. can't trust anybody and lonely. Yeah. You know? And it's, 
It's really, really interesting. If anybody is curious about this, I urge you to go read the Vanity Fair article. It is long and in-depth like Mm -hmm. Vanity Fair articles are, but it gives you a much broader, Mm -hmm. more in-depth look at this entire story. Do understand that it was written in 1999. Mm -hmm. So- Mm -hmm. With all of the trappings that that comes with. Uh, And if you are um, even more interested in this story, uh, this is the way that I even found out about the story is that I listened to an audible like podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like a scripted podcast called The Miranda Obsession. uh, And it stars Rachel Brosnahan. And like oh. all of these, like Luke Kirby and Morgan Spector <laughs> and Josh Groban, and it's like that's, a dramatized yeah, telling that's of this up story. Popped on my Audible list of things. It's great, and the okay, thing, like, check that out. Yeah, Rachel Brosnahan does a like from the first minute. You're like, oh yeah, if this is what she talked like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent. I can see why these guys were like, yeah, what, call back, call back. Interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. check that out. Yeah. yeah, so you can check that out if you have an Audible subscription. It was written by Jen Silverman, and I think it just came out last year. So uh, I've yeah. been I'd been listening to it again in the sort of like preparation for this. Okay, uh, cool. but go and check it out. And then um, if you need to cheer yourself up, some like you know hot August afternoon, definitely watch Searching for Sugar Man. It, it's very worth it. it awesome. Okay, that's all I've got. We're yeah. winding summer down. Basically, it's spooky season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a couple spooky season stories that are percolating in my head. I was so excited the other day because there was like yesterday because there was like a hint of Christmas and like crispness mm-hmm. in the air yesterday morning. And I was like, ooh, I did not know, but I am ready for fall. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've been ready for months. I hate this. I'm song. sure you have. I'm sure you have. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, once again, don't forget to subscribe. Again, if you've gotten to this point in the podcast and you're listening to us on Spotify, check a sec to give us a, a five-star rating. I'm just going to go yeah. ahead and do shameless yeah. podcast promotion here. If you're listening to us on any other platform, hit us up with a review. Um, we'd love to know your thoughts. We'll put out a social media post, you know, comment, like, share, all of those things. And other than that, Stay weird, stay curious, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.